difficulty. And when we blame others and don't look internally, we can get stuck and we don't or can't, as James reminded us earlier, consider it pure joy when we face trials. Because, well, that's not my fault. I've got nothing to learn here. It's only that person over there who needs to change and get better and not do this kind of thing in my life. So the question is that we face trials, and the, the, the question Maya is going to pop up there is, well, who can I blame for the trials that I'm going through? If it's part of our human nature to try and apportion responsibility to someone else, who can we blame for the trials that we're going through? So if you have your Bibles here, we'll be opening up the book of James, chapter 1. Leona, Leona and I get to work to, uh, serve together in the Ignite Age Group, which is fantastic. And now we're serving together uh, in the adult meeting. It's quite fun. I like it. And she's already read out the text, but it's worth reading again because this is where we'll be spending, in these three verses, spending our morning together. It says in verse 12 onwards, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, a lot of heavy heavy words in that passage that I hope to bring and shed some light on. But James is connecting this thing about trials, and he's introducing something else in there, temptation, and something of following that of sin. And so we'll discover this morning that there's a tension between trial and temptation and sin, that these things are connected somehow, and we'll be unpacking each of those as we go out. But let's talk for a moment how trials can surface temptations for every single one of us. As you know, trials and tests are difficult. They're painful. They're not pleasant. That's, that's a bit of an understatement, right? They feel like they're impossible situations. One of the, the images I have when people are going through trial, it's like they've got a backpack and there's just weights and rocks and bricks in the backpack. You just feel like you're just trying to get through each week, each day, and in some situations, just trying to get through each hour. That, tempt, that trials can feel unbearable. They can feel overwhelming. And in those situations, we can end up making choices that we wouldn't make if life was simpler, easier, less painful, right? And sometimes when you observe somebody else going through a trial, you're like, why did you make that decision for your life? From the outside, it's easy to see it's a mistake, but when you're in there, it seems like, the right thing to do, or it seems like the only thing to do. And so trial, a trial is not the temptation, but temptations surface themselves during times of trial. Because trials reveal what's really important to us. And when anything that is precious to us is under threat, or it's taken away, we can respond in very powerful ways. And what I mean by powerful is we can respond in ways that go, that surprised me. Why am I behaving like this? Why am I responding in this way season? And many times it's because something that is precious to us is under threat. And just like any good parent, when a child is under threat, you jump into action to protect them. We jump into action to protect 
what is precious to us, even if what is precious to us is not all that good and healthy and right. And so, when something is threatened, we lash out. We might seek comfort because, well, I I need something to comfort me because this is under threat and I don't want to live in a world without that thing or without that person. Thanks, Adrian. We might isolate ourselves. In fact, the way that we respond to trials, what we get tempted with, is so many different things, and every single one of us is different, and we will respond in patterns and in ways that are, that are typical to us in many ways. And so we might be tempted, first of all, to find a solution or to find comfort in ways that are not glorifying to God. So the trial isn't the temptation. I'll come back to that in a second. But the temptation to find comfort or to solve the problem The temptation is to do that in a way that doesn't glorify God, to rush ahead of God and try and fix it yourself instead of trusting in Him. Now, a second way that we can be tempted during times of trial is we can be tempted to doubt God's goodness. We can be tempted to doubt God's goodness. We may have a belief, and if you say there's some verses that you might have on a on a coffee mug or stuck up on your wall that can lead us to believe in in a certain version of Christianity that that says God won't let me go through trials, right? There's a version of Christianity where saying God is working all things together for my good, and my good looks like my comfort, my health, and my happiness. And so as soon as any of those things are taken away, well then God is no longer good, or God is no longer in control. And it is completely understandable in times of intense trial to question, is God good? Is he in control? Can he be trusted? Those are natural questions. And in reality, when we focus on answering those questions in a healthy way, those questions can strengthen our faith. But if we believe that being a Christian protects you from hardships, those questions will undermine your faith. I feel like I'm stepping on some toes here. A hard but necessary truth is that the Christian life does not mean that we are spared from danger or trial. It means that we are preserved through it. Let me say that again. The Christian life does not mean that we are spared from danger, that our life will be completely simple and unimpacted by pain and suffering, ours or others. There is no way in Scripture that promises us a pain-free life once we follow Jesus. In fact, it's almost the opposite sometimes. What the Bible does promise, what God does promise, is that He preserves us through those trials. And even if we lose our life, we are still preserved. That is the, the Christian hope. Is that even if we're facing down a terminal illness, God is still preserving us because we have a hope that goes beyond the grave. But if we hold on to a a basic belief that God is going to protect me from pain and suffering, then when I do suffer and experience pain, there's only one person to blame, and that's, that's God. And so the temptation that trials surface, the temptation is to doubt God's goodness and not to count it pure joy when we face trials. Because counting at pure joy, as we learned in verse 2 or 3, doesn't mean that the trials go away. It doesn't mean as soon as I count at pure joy, then my situation's going to be suddenly better. It doesn't promise that, does it? 
It's telling us that God is still in control. He's fashioning something of himself in us as we go through the trial. God's goodness doesn't have a sell-by date or a best-before date, that as soon as you go through difficulty, he's no longer good. He is good, he is good, he is good, even through pain and suffering and heartache. And that is the hope that we can cling to. That is how we can have joy. That is how we can persevere under trials and how we can reject the temptation to doubt God's goodness. Now, I'm going to ask you now to think about the last trial that you went through. It might be your current season right now that you're facing. You can describe and say, I'm in that trial. It might be a little while ago. There was something significant that you experienced. How did you respond? What, were your, what did you think about the trial? How did you try to make sense of it? Did you perhaps blame God for the trial? Did you perhaps fall into some sinful habits during that trial as a way of comforting yourself or finding a solution to solving that that trial? Maybe there was a justification in your mind saying, God made this situation happen, so actually it's okay if I engage in this sinful behavior because God made it happen. He knows, so he'll be okay with my sin. It's amazing how we can come up with an argument in our mind that when somebody else says it, it sounds silly, but we can argue with ourselves and find any justification for our sin, right? So trials, temptations, and sin are not a sequence that are locked in. What I mean by that is trials don't have to lead to temptations, and temptation does not have to lead to sin. James is reminding us here that God is not responsible for our temptation in the trial, and he is not responsible for us sinning or giving in to the temptation in the trial. Yes, it is true that God allows trials in our lives, and as we learned earlier in the chapter, he allows trials to take place to strengthen us, not to weaken us, that he's doing something in us and for us, for his glory and our good even if the good doesn't feel comfortable. So this verse that we've been unpacking, that God tempts no one, it's to counteract, in many ways, that logic that I mentioned just now. Like, God allowed this trial, and under the pressure of the trial, I sinned, therefore God is the one who led me astray. God is the one who caused me to sin. That kind of logic, James is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, God is perfectly good. In him there is no evil, none whatsoever. He has not tempted you. He has not caused you to sin. And so many times we want to be clinging on to this thing. I want to blame somebody for my temptation and my sin. And James is saying, wait a minute. If you've got anybody to blame, it's not God. You can't level a finger, an accusing finger at God saying, you tempted me, God. And because God, you tempted me and I sinned, it's your fault. Right? And so. God does not tempt us. The Greek uh, word there in verse 13, it says, he himself tempts no one. It's kind of the ongoing present continuous. In other words, God does not tempt, has not tempted us, and will never tempt anybody. It's not like he goes through a pattern where he's saying, okay, now I'm going to tempt you. Just for this season during this trial. It sure does feel that way, doesn't it? 
Because as I mentioned, trials can feel overwhelming, can feel overbearing that we are pushed down, and it feels like we have no choice in the matter. I'm going to come back to that in a little while. A, a natural thing that we think about when we, we consider what's the difference between trial and temptation and sin is we think about uh, Jesus being led out into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit, as it tells us, took him out into the wilderness. And the Holy Spirit, as being God, did not sin. Jesus was going through a trial. Who was the one that tempted Jesus? It wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was the devil. And Jesus said no to those temptations. A couple of things we pull out of that very quickly is that temptation is the same as sin. Because you can be tempted and not sin like Jesus did. The temptation itself, in other words, the desire to do something that you know to be wrong, is not sin itself. Giving in is the sin. But I'm going to come back to that again some point before I finish this message. So verse 13 says, Let no one say when they are tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so James, what we suspect is that he's addressing a situation in the lives of believers who are going through a trial. Now picture a, a reality is when you're wanting to gather with the people of God, that people would chase you down, hunt you down, and kill you for that. And so people were fleeing, going in different directions to find safety, to find a, a place where they were not going to be persecuted for their Christian faith. Now can you imagine, in that kind of situation, you're saying, I'm being persecuted for following God. Now God has allowed this trial to happen. It's, it must be okay that I give in to this kind of sin. And that's such a broken picture of who God is, isn't it? It kind of makes God into this petty little rule keeper who says, I'm going to set a trap and I'm going to tempt them and I hope they fall because then I can kick them out of my church. Right? Isn't that like a petty picture of saying like, we're going to blame God for giving us trials or blame God for temptations and sin? And so James is saying, it's got to be very, very clear. There is no evil in God. He himself is not tempted by evil. He can't be bribed to do a different thing. He is pure, he is holy, he is undefiled. So before I move on to the next section, just to reiterate a couple of key points, because when we get the, the, the things mixed up, it can, can lead us to be a little bit confused. Okay, so God does allow trials and tests, not to catch us out, but to strengthen us, to grow us. No growth happens in a place of comfort. And so trials grow us and strengthen us in God's purposes. The trial itself is not temptation. The temptation is surfaced in a trial, right? Saying, I want to give in to this to find comfort or to remedy this, this trial that I'm going through. And temptation is not sin. Jesus himself faced temptation and yet was without sin. So you see how those three things are tied together. Trials can surface temptation, and temptation gives us the opportunity to sin. But sin is always the choice of the person committing it, doing it. Whether it's completing an action, whether it's in thought, or whether it's not doing something that you should do, right? It's always the choice of that person. And so, we are to resist evil and blame only ourselves for when we sin. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. And James is still driving us through this line of thinking. It tells us in how temptation can lead to sin. Because if temptation isn't sin, 
How does it work? Verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, one thing you'll pick up in the book of James, he employs a lot of strong language, a lot of big contrasts. And you see this like, beautiful language of lured and enticed and giving birth and bring forth death. Like It's this beautiful literary, literary style that you're going to pick up in the book. But first of all, in here, let's talk about desires. Let's talk about desires. Desires are a natural and normal part of being human. A natural and normal part of being human. And that actually can be a good thing. Right? If we didn't desire food, we wouldn't eat. We would die. The desire for food is natural and normal and can be good and keep us healthy. But naturally, it can also lead us into sin when we seek to fulfill those desires in a way that's dishonoring to God or outside of his plan and purposes for humanity. So I'm going to pack three desires, very briefly, three desires that we face and, and, and show the tension that, that we find here. First of all, it's the desire to enjoy things. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? It's a thing. It's neither good nor bad. So when we enjoy food, we can honor God and worship Him because we're enjoying something that's tasty. But we can also be led into gluttony and eating for comfort, a sinful way of satisfying the desire for food or to enjoy good things. What about uh, sex and beauty, community? Right? All of these things are desires that we have that can be fulfilled in a way that honors God and can also be fulfilled in a way that dishonors God. Remember Jesus' temptation in the, in, the, in the wilderness? He was tempted to turn stones into bread. It's kind of one of the most, uh, I just love it, in, in the book of Matthew, it tells like Jesus had fasted for 40 days and then there's a sentence, and he was very hungry. <laughs> just like... That's, yeah, I, w I would suspect that, right? So what does the devil try to do? He tries to pervert a basic human need of hunger and saying, Jesus, you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. Could Jesus do it? Yes, right? He had the, the power and the authority to do that. But he had a natural and normal and good desire to be satisfied by food. There's nothing wrong with that. But the way the devil wanted him to do it was outside the plans that God had for Jesus' life. And therefore, it was a temptation to sin. Eating bread is not a sin unless you're banting. But, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> but eating bread is not, the, is not the sin. But in that context, what Jesus was tempted to do was use inappropriate means to satisfy a natural desire. The second temptation, Jesus was taken to the top of the temple, kind of the highest man-made point that the devil could take him, and said, jump off and the angels are going to protect you, right? It's a human desire to be safe. There's nothing wrong with desiring to be safe. But the devil was tempting Jesus to use an illegitimate manner of keeping safe, trusting in the wrong thing, Right? You see the, the tension there. Normal desire, natural desire, the temptation was to fulfill it in an unholy and ungodly way. So that's, that's the desire to enjoy things. There's also a desire to obtain or get things, right? And Jesus, our commandments in the scriptures tell humans to have dominion over the world, to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to you. In the parable of the talents, it seems that you, what you have, you must multiply. There's this sense that we are entrusted with things and that's a good thing. 
But it's so easy to see how when we try to fulfill that desire of having things, it can easily lead us into sinful ways of fulfilling that. Exploiting other people, right? Stealing, etc., etc., etc. Natural desire to have things, are we doing it in a way, so are we fulfilling it in a way that is godly? The third thing is the desire to do things or to achieve. Now, this is a funny one, but it's, it's this desire that we have for an experience. There's nothing wrong with wanting to travel to a foreign land and experience different culture and different food. There's nothing unholy with that, right? What about doing that race or serving that life group or, or being uh, a leader in Kids Rock, right? To do things can be a good and holy and wonderful thing. But we can so quickly find our identity in what we're doing. We can so quickly turn a beautiful action fueled by a normal desire and turn it into something that is self-seeking, self-benefiting. And we talk about the pride of life in Scripture. And Jesus' third temptation, this is where he feels the devil offered him saying, I'm going to take you to a place where you can see all the kingdoms of the earth and I'm going to get them to worship you or bow down to you, excuse me, if you will only worship me. Now, Jesus is the only legitimate person who can receive the praise, the adoration, the glory of all the kingdoms in the world, right? That was due to him. He's the son of God. So why was that a temptation for Jesus? Well, the temptation was to get to the end goal without going through the cross. It was to get to the end goal that Jesus is receiving all the glory of all the kingdoms in the earth, but to do it in a way that was short-circuiting God's plan, specifically death on the cross. And so I hope that you see that the issue here is not that desire is wrong. It's how we fulfill that desire is whether it leads us to temptation and into sin or not. And that's why this language of lured and enticed is such a beautiful image. So a lure in fishing terminology, uh, Greg can explain it better than I can, but is basically it's something that's man-made that's meant to look like something else, that tricks the fish into biting it. And inside this thing, whether it looks like a worm or an insect or another fish, is a hook. And it's basically trying to, as the fisherman is trying to move this thing in the water to make it look just like what this thing gets hungry for. And so that fish has a desire to be fulfilled by eating that worm or whatever it happens to be, and sees this thing moving, goes out and gets it. The fisherman gets the hook into the mouth of the fish, reels it in. And that's such a a helpful picture because as human beings, we so often are seeing these things going past our awareness. We're seeing that bait and we're going, oh, that looks nice. (laughs) Let me go get that. And we don't pause to say, is this satisfying a desire in a godly way or an ungodly way? And it happens all the time like this, right? You follow that link. You're watching that thing. You go and hang out with those people and suddenly you're ending up doing things that you didn't think you would do right? Because we've been lured in by our desires. And so this, and, and, and I think one of the challenges with that as well is that it is a little bit satisfying. That sinful way that we try and satisfy that desire, it feels good, otherwise we wouldn't do it, right? But it will always leave us feeling a little bit emptier, a little bit betrayed, a little bit less trusting of ourselves and others because What sin does is promises so much and delivers so little because we're engaging in things that God never designed us to engage in. So why is it that we choose the wrong thing over the right thing? Why is it that we choose that lure with the hook in it compared to the tasty morsel that God provides for us? 
right? Why is it that we do that? What causes us to sin? It comes down to that question that I started with saying, who can I blame for this situation? Who can I blame for my sin? Thankfully, there are some answers. Not just shaking my fist at the ceiling at God, in God's general direction. I want to talk about three things that influence our capacity, or inf- sorry, influence us to choose sin over choosing not sin. I'm just keeping it very vague like that. There's three things that influence us that will try and pull us away from godly living into ungodly living. Three things that will influence us to find a way of seeking that desire to be satisfied in ungodly ways. The three things are our sinful nature, the world, and the devil. This isn't in the book of James. This, I'm, I'm taking you kind of into uh, a little bit one level higher of overarching scriptural But uh, the sinful nature, it's a, a scripture tells us that no one is righteous, not even one person. That if you did a survey of every person that ever lived, there is not one who is righteous, not one. The only person who lived the righteous life was Jesus himself. We also know that inside every person, they bear the image of God. But that image, because of sin, has been distorted or cracked or damaged. Different kind of language to unpack this thing. And unless God intervenes in our lives, we cannot choose to not sin. Does it make sense? We're destined to keep sinning, keep sinning, keep sinning, unless God intervenes in our lives. So, the Apostle Paul calls it like the old man or the flesh, right? You might have heard that in some of the other scripture. He's saying like, there's the new man that God has, is making inside of me that has been saved. And it's at war with the old man, the old flesh that pulls me back to old sinful ways. And so even as long as we live, we never get rid of that old man. Our sinful nature never fully disappears. Can it be tamed? Yes. I'm going to come back to that in a little while but it will always be there and will always be trying to deceive us. And that's in many ways why he's saying you can't really trust your emotions. You can't really always trust everything that you think, right? Because your sinful nature is there. It's corrupting you, even though you might be wanting to do good. So that's our sinful nature. The world is talking about the environment that we're living in, the structures that are around us in society. And they are not built to help us follow God. That's kind of an obvious statement, right? The rest of the world is not structured to help me better follow Jesus and say no to sin. Now, many times, what we see around us, whether it's in TV shows, in that adverts that pop up on your web browser, they're sending us a message all the time. This is how you can be satisfied. That desire that you have, this is what you need. Is that item that they're selling actually sinful or not? Is the person putting that advert together from the devil? It's like, that's not quite the question we're trying to answer, right? But the reality is, all of these adverts are promising something, and the promise is, you will be satisfied if you have this. This item, this experience, a body that looks like that, a house that looks like this, a car that goes that fast, etc., etc., and so much of the world stirs up our hearts to discontentment to try and find shortcuts to have those desires satisfied. Right? Is the world that we live, do I blame them for that? No. Because, no. Unless God intervenes in somebody's life, they can't not choose to sin. 
So that's the world. What about the devil? We read in different parts of Scripture how the spiritual realm, the things that we experience but can't see, is real. And that the devil and his servants or demons, they're at work to keep us away from following Jesus faithfully. But I have to put it in here. We've got to remember that the devil is not like God. They're not equal and opposite forces, yin and yang, the light side of the force, the dark side of the force. They're not equal. They're not in balance with each other. First of all, the devil is not everywhere at all time where God is. There's a limited number of demons, not infinite, right? So sometimes we can get this belief that actually it's the devil tempting me. It's the devil himself or it's a demon forcing me to do something, right? But the reality is their power is limited. God constrains their powers and the influence that they have. And so if you struggle with a particular sin, maybe there's a person or an experience or something that goes and you're driving past or going past a place that is very hard for you to say no to, and you're feeling that yearning, that desire to go in or see that person or do that, that practice that activity again, that might not be the devil tempting you. It probably is your sinful nature going, you know what, last time you went there, it was amazing. This time, this time round is going to be even better. Promise you. Okay? We've all had those conversations inside of it. Are you having a conversation with the devil? I don't, th- I don't think so. It is possible, but I don't think so. The reality is our sinful nature is always trying to get us to satisfy those desires in unhealthy, ungodly, unwholesome ways. And so, even though we have a sinful nature, even though we're living in a world that is wanting to take us away from God and the the work of the devil and his demons are real, we still have choice. We still have choice to say yes to good and say no to bad. That no matter what situation, what trial you're in, what temptation you're facing, none of that takes away the ability for us to say no. So, the question is, who causes you to sin? It's you. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to death, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James helps us see that there's no little sins. When sin is running around in your life, it's going to bring forth death. Death to relationships, death to joy, death to spiritual union with God, death to community, death. It's not necessarily physical, actual, someone's going to die. But sinful actions bring about a rot in your life. And that's why sin is not something to manage. It's like, I'm doing a little bit better, I'm doing less of that than I did last week. Right? We can get tempted and say, limiting Christianity to be sin management. No, no, sin is not something to be managed. Sin is something to be put to death. And how do we do that? How do we do that? I'm going to skip them. There we are. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 tells us some helpful ways of seeing that how do we overcome the sin that when we are tempted, we can stand up underneath it. The Apostle Paul writes, says, no temptation has overtaken you except, oh, sorry, that is, I'm thinking NIV translation, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
In other words, what you have been tempted by, other people are tempted by as well. We may live uh, and, and interpret our reality in such, I'm like, I'm the only person facing this difficulty. That Apostle says, you know what? Others are too. He continues, it says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This takes away our excuses, doesn't it? <laughs> because if we have a sense of that, this is what I'm going through in life, it's okay that I'm doing this and this and this. This verse takes that off the table. An excuse might be, God has made me this way, I have to give in to this sin. Paul says, no, that's not true. Some excuse saying, I cannot say no to this sin, right? It's too powerful, it's too strong, I'm too stuck. This verse tells us there is a way out. God is faithful, he will provide a way out. And so even though we might feel that all our choices are removed, that the only thing we can do is continue in that sin, Paul is saying that's not true that we can hang on to this truth, that the provision and the protection and the deliverance of God will enable every faithful believer to endure temptation. There is never a moment when God is not with his followers to supply the strength to overcome that temptation. Never a moment, never a split second where God is busy with something else and said, oh, I wasn't there to help you. I feel like I'm stepping on toes again. So how is it that we can have power to resist all temptations that are on offer to us? And that's, it's by reminding ourselves in many ways that Jesus has over, overcome those three things that influence us to sin. I didn't say, I say, you know my words very carefully. Influence us to sin, not cause us to sin. Influence us. First of all, Jesus has overcome our sinful nature. That in Christ we are no longer slaves chained to sin that we are now free to choose what is right and good and holy. In Romans 6 it says, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Our sinful nature has been overcome, has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. We're no longer slaves to sin. What about the world? In John uh, chapter 16, Jesus tells his followers explicitly, he says, take heart, you know what? I've overtake, overcome the world. So the, the structures in this world, Jesus is, has authority over that. We can't say, I'm, I'm just a victim being pushed to and fro by the forces in this world. No, 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 Jesus has overcome the world. What about the devil? It tells us in Colossians chapter 2. It says that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities, these spiritual ones, and put them to open shame by triumphing, tri I know how I say that word, by having victory over them. Isn't that amazing? Well, it is amazing. It's great truth because we can say nobody can hide behind a thing saying the devil made me do it. Wait, 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 wait. The devil? No. He doesn't have the power to do that. He is, Jesus had victory over him and has taken away his authority, right? And that's why later on in James, when we get to there uh, some point later this year, James 4 verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee. So if it is the devil tempting you, <laughs> because Jesus has won already. Resist the devil, 
and he's got to go. He can't hang around because the authority that Jesus has won is embedded in every believer. And so Jesus, the hero of our faith, the center of our faith, he resisted temptation and has overcome these three things so that we can too follow him faithfully and put to death the misdeeds of the body. So how are you doing? I feel like I can't bring this message and this topic of trials and temptations and sin without stepping on, on toes and bursting some, bob, some balloons or some bubbles that people might have around saying, it's okay that this sin is reigning in my life because of this and this reason. I feel like I have to step on toes, and hopefully it's with gospel truth, not insensitivity. I hope that the gospel truth has burst forth that's saying that there's a pattern of sin in your life, that there is truth that you can cling on to to overcome that, that you don't have to be stuck there. Romans 6, again, these two passages of James 1 and Romans 6 are so wonderfully complementary. But uh, Romans 6 verse 12, it says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law, and instead you live under the freedom of God's grace. There's a few ways of responding this morning. For some in the room, I can imagine that there's a pattern of sin that you're very familiar with. And perhaps it's time to ask others to hold you accountable. There's some patterns of sin that you can see coming from kilometers away. Kind of like driving down a freeway. It's not just an immediate, there's the off-ramp, let me take it. It's like two kilometers, one kilometer, 500 meters, 100 meters. And you know that's coming. And accountability helps you to say, hey, hey, I've seen the two kilometers until that turn-off sign. I need some help from a, from a friend who can pray with me, who can stand with me, who tomorrow can ask me how I did. Accountability can help you stay on the straight and narrow. Part of that, what Scripture tells us, is to confess our sins to one another. Confessing is actually person to person, not person to God. Repentance is from person to God, from person to person. And when you take something out of the darkness, that pattern of sin that feels like chains around your, your heart and your life, and you bring it out into the light, it loses some of its power that other people can journey with you. You might uh, be in a place where you're saying, I feel stuck with this sin, but I don't recognize the patterns. I don't see the signs. I'm just suddenly find myself in that sin again. And I encourage you, process it with somebody else who loves and trusts you, maybe more mature in the faith, who can help you identify what are those feelings, those patterns of thinking, the, the triggers that can set you off course, that you can put things in place to protect yourself. Naturally, one of the things in response to this is to repent of your sins. To repent of your sins. To say, God, I don't want to carry this anymore. Even though I might be in this trial, even though I've given into this temptation so many times, God, I want to bring my sin before you that I may be washed clean. And then finally, remembering in all of this that Jesus has already conquered sin for us. That I'm not here layering law upon law upon law saying be good because you should be good because, yeah, be good. 
that doesn't help anybody, right? It's this freedom of saying, I have been forgiven, therefore I choose life, not sin. Saying Jesus has overcome this, I can say no to this because he already has put it to death, conquered it, overcome it. So we're going to ask um, the band to play quietly in the background as we respond in the way that we feel God has, has called us to. I don't know where this message has landed with you, whether it is to identify the patterns of sin, to repent, to come to God. Leona's going to read uh, Psalm 51 for us in a few moments, which is a beautiful confessional that, uh, that David wrote after committing adultery. It's the confessional of saying, God, I need you. Actually, let's stay seated for the moment. Um, this kind of moment, you, if you want to get onto your knees as you confess your sins to God, you're most welcome. Assume a posture that helps you to commune with God. Let's pray. Jesus, we can celebrate even in the midst of our sin, we can celebrate, Jesus, that you have overcome it. That's even as we struggle with facing down temptations and saying yes to the right thing and no to the wrong thing. Thank you, Jesus, that you are with us. That you don't ask us to do anything that you haven't yourself done already. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move among us as we sang earlier. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, convict us that you would uh, shine your, your, your searchlight in so many ways of what sin we need to confess, what sin we need to repent of, Lord. And as, uh, as the Holy Spirit reveals things to you, I just encourage you to, to respond in, in the way that's, that seems fit to turn from your sin, you might need to make right with somebody that you've hurt. And you ask God for strength to do that and courage to do that. Savior, we are so, so grateful that what you offer is, <laughs> we can't find it anywhere else. We can't forgive ourselves of our sin, but you can. We find our hope in you. We find our purpose in you. We find our strength in you. May you be glorified, Lord Jesus. as we hear Psalm 51 read over us bring your sin before God that he may cleanse you and wash you and present you righteous before God again came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. transgressions wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. not may we go through the next week bringing all our transgressions before God and just remembering that he alone is the one who will set us free have a blessed Sunday guys oh by the way there is tea and coffee so do not rush off uh, connect with somebody over tea and coffee visit us remember the lounge, the lounge behind the door would like to meet with you thank you all